morning, uh, we are continuing in um, our journey to Jerusalem um, and walking with Christ as he heads into Jerusalem. So today we're going to be in Luke 20. And uh, just give you a little recap and some idea of where we're heading for the morning. Um, the idea is in front of uh, us this, this morning is the idea that Christ has about three or four days uh, left uh, after we get out of chapter 20. Uh, so what we're going to cover today is typically what we feel is Monday and Tuesday of, of his final week here um, before he goes to the cross. And um, I don't know what I would be doing um, if I only had a few days left to live, but my guess is I probably, uh, I hope that I would be, but I don't know that I would be doing what Jesus is doing over these next 48 hours. And uh, I hope this morning that as you see what he's doing over these 48 hours, it encourages you, uh, it motivates you, and you can step back and say, holy cow, I, I, I love the Christ that I serve uh, because of what he does on this Monday and Tuesday. So last week we saw <clears throat> Sunday that he was uh, entering, entering Jericho and then going up from Jericho into Jerusalem. And we see Zacchaeus last week. And then we saw the, this crazy parable that I completely, there's so much to that parable that I could not get to. Uh, and then we saw basically this triumphal entry into Jerusalem and then him weeping over it all of last Sunday. And today we go to this Monday and Tuesday and all of these 48 hours are going to revolve around the temple of Jerusalem. So if this journey was Jericho to Jerusalem, he has now hit Jerusalem. And as we get to this Monday and Tuesday, uh, we see that he's going to spend a lot of time, 48 hours, as I guess, uh, in the temple area. It's interesting because we get Monday and Tuesday in Scripture, but there's really no record of a Wednesday, of what he did on Wednesday. And so we just assume he's continued to do ministry, but it's just interesting that we don't really get that. We get his Saturday, that he took a Sabbath, uh, which is amazing, even leading to his death, uh, right? Uh, but there, there, there's, that was before, obviously, this coming Saturday, he's somewhere else. But um, the previous Saturday, he actually took a Sabbath, which is crazy. And then now we get this Monday, Tuesday, uh, as he's around the temple. So all the people are around the temple. I want to set the scene. There are thousands of people that have migrated into Jerusalem. Uh, and all these people will be in repeated throughout every section of Luke 20. You're going to see this phrase, that all the people, all the people, all the people. So there's this, there's this idea that the narrator's trying to get to see. There's a lot of people. There's a lot of people listening. You're also going to see in this section, fear of all the people is going to be a phrase that you're going to see in Luke 20. So there's not only a lot of people, but there's some kind of a fear that's going on as they are seeing Jesus do these things. And then you're going to see Jesus' authority is on display in every section in Luke 20. You're going to see your king who was humble and riding in on a donkey, kind of take a turn here, and you're going to see a lot of his authority on display. Now, also, uh, imagine that you're in Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem, there were thousands that would gather here. Think of New York City, New Year's Eve, people piling in, piling into the city. And uh, on top of that, you would also, in that time, the temple would have been this magnificent thing to behold because you would see it in the distance. And it was this huge architectural design that was covered and plated in silver and it was plated in gold. And what was not plated in silver and what was not plated in gold was, was erected with white marble. And so this place, if the sun hit this thing, you'd be like, Wow. So if you were a distance off, you'd almost, it would almost look like a white cap of a mountain because that's how gleaming this was. And this temple would have been the place, especially heading into Passover, that everybody would have been around. It would have been on the highest hill, it would have been an amazing sight, and thousands would have been there at this point. 
Jesus will spend two days in this temple area offering a key thing. And that key thing that I feel like he's going to be offering all through Luke 20 is freedom. Freedom. Freedom from the religious rules of the religious leaders. And he's going to come in and offer and say, I am your king. And I, I come in not to rule and to reign as far as a dictator is concerned. I come in as a king offering you freedom. And we'll see this morning that Jesus has come to set things right with the Jewish leaders. Because they have, as they always seem to, as you read the Gospels, they have polluted religion. They've taken the beauty out of religion and turned it into a disgusting power grab. Instead of freedom, uh, they were known for greed, bribery, at least cla elite classism, and manipulation of the true heart of God. That's, that's what we see from the religious rulers at this time around the temple. So we begin in 1945. And we see Jesus come into the temple, and he comes into a temple, uh, he comes in pretty hot. So let's just go into 1945. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Again, notice hanging, uh, all the people hanging on his words. So we find the first thing the king does is he rolls into the temple. And I don't know how this went down, but I can almost imagine as he's teaching, he's kind of just braiding this whip. And his disciples are like, what's he building? And as he's building and as he's talking, this whip is, is, is built and he starts to drive out the money changers, the, the, those that collected for the sacrifices, and he drove everybody out. He's flipping over tables. This thing would have been chaotic. Uh, this would have caused a big scene. Um, back in my youth ministry days, I actually flipped tables for this story. I'm not going to do that today. Uh, but they were like, he just flipped a table. Uh, and it was cool for middle school, but it wasn't so cool later on. So, uh, but you picture this Christ coming in, causing this scene, and, and driving out these money changers who are collecting for the sacrifices. And he comes in in a bold way. And I think why he comes in in a bold way is he's trying to show these people, you must be free from man-made religion. You must be free from this religion that was built on the, on, the, on the backs of these Pharisees, Sadducees, and religious leaders and was not built on the back of Jesus Christ. They were built on the back of those who were seeking money and power. In Isaiah 56, 7, which is what he quotes to these people at the temple. So Jesus says, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers. That text is actually taken from Isaiah 56, 7. And in Isaiah 56, 7, the text is talking less about Jewish people and talking about Gentile people being held without or held outside of the temple. So Jesus is not just saying you've made this into a den of thieves. He's basically saying you've not only corrupted this for yourselves, you've kept out those who are in most need of the temple itself. Access to God himself is needed by the Gentiles, and you've pushed them all out. And so this causes an uproar from the Pharisees and the disciples, or I'm sorry, from the, the religious leaders. And, and so we pick up and then in, in chapter 20, because he's still around the temple, he's now being seen as a target painted on his back, and we pick up in 20. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel... That's a, that's a key phrase. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders came up to him and said, Tell us, by what authority do you do these things? 
Or who is it that gave you this authority? <laughs> it's a good question. If somebody comes into church and they start tossing tables of donuts and you're like, this is not to be, uh, we'd all cry. Me personally, I would cry. I'd be like, get off the floor. Uh, but if somebody were to come in and, and start causing a scene, you would probably, hopefully, have the same re reaction. Who are you <laughs> and who gave you the authority and does anybody know that you were supposed to do that, right? That's a weird question. But, but you get the idea, right? There was this idea of authority. It was like, who gave you the authority to come into the temple? And who do you think you are to tell us what to do? And Christ, in normal Christ fashion, answers them with a question. And he says, he answered them and said, I will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Now, here's, here's, what, here's what you love about Jesus at the temple. He's going to do this a lot. He's going to frustrate us. He's going to frustrate the leaders because instead of giving them an answer, he asks a very powerful question, does a mic drop, and just walks off. Because what he has just asked them is going to make them look really, really stupid. And it's going to really cause a lot of division even among themselves. He asks... Do you really believe that John the Baptist is who he said he was? Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it from one another saying, well, if we say it's from heaven, <laughs> he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. And so they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus, as Jesus normally does, says to them, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. <laughs> Love it. They were stuck because John the Baptist was clear about who Jesus was. He was the one that would go before. He was the one whose sandals I am unfit to untie. He is the, he is the promised Messiah. And if John the Baptist said it, and if you believe John the Baptist was a prophet sent by God, that God communicated through John the Baptist to speak on his behalf about me, follow the train of thought. If you, down, if you take down John, you take down the voice that spoke through John, which is God himself. So therefore, you're, you're saying that authority is, is null and void. And he pins them in this beautiful corner. And this corner was built out of this man-made Religion. It was this, this thing that was just built on how can we keep people down? How can, we, how can we keep our authority and power up? And he says, neither will I then tell you the authority of which I do these things. And then if that wasn't enough, like it's almost as if you're painting the picture of Jesus Christ coming into Jerusalem. You wouldn't picture it as a guy who's like trying to get people to kill him right? I mean, it's just this onslaught of like, just stop talking because the more you're doing, the more you're ticking people off and this isn't going to end well for you, Jesus. But again, he, he talks about this, the, he gives a temple and then all of a sudden he goes into this idea of authority and then he tells a parable. And the parable that we see here is he begins to tell the people a parable about a man who planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants that went into a country for a long while. And when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed, and he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed, and he sent out a third, and this one, uh, this one they also wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him. And so, the inheritance, so that the inheritance may be ours. 
And they drew him out of the vineyard and killed him. And when the owner of the vineyard, I'm sorry, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. Now, this reaction, we we can read this and you're kind of like, okay, there's a vine, there's a tenant. Why is this a big deal? Why are they mad? Let me just kind of just break this down real quickly this morning. When we talk about man-made religion, the man-made religion was that of these in the creating it of Israel. And these men had created such a religion that they thought they were right. And Jesus is now telling a parable that tells these religious leaders, you've had it wrong and you're continuing to get it wrong. When he talks about these people who are sent, the parable is that of prophets So he speaks of prophets such as Isaiah, Jeremiah. He talks of uh, Moses even and those that were sent ahead of them. And he says, I sent you person after person in the Old Testament to tell you I am the Messiah. And you killed each and every one of them. You wounded some. You killed some. You, you, You didn't hear it. So God himself has now sent his son to the vineyard, which is a huge, glaring illustration that they would have known to speak of Jerusalem itself. The, Jew, the Jewish people, would, the fig tree and, and, and vineyard, that, that was a huge image to them. They would recognize it. He's talking about us here. That's us. He means us. And so when God says, I sent my son and you killed him, and he's going to come after you, the tenants, and he's going to take away your vineyard, I'm going to take away all that you possess and all that you find valuable, and I'm going to give it to somebody else. He has a purpose here. It's not just giving it to somebody else. I'm giving it to the Gentiles. You're done. I'm now going to move, and I'm going to give it to those outside of the Jewish faith, (laughs) which ticked them off to no degree. It was shameful. It was unheard of. They weren't even allowed in the building. They weren't even allowed near them. The Gentiles were too gross, too dirty, too, too unholy to be near us Jewish people. Are you kidding me? You're going to give it to them? You don't do that. And Jesus says, I'm going to give it to somebody else. And they say, surely not. But he looked directly at them and he says, what then is this written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Here's the beauty. Jesus is calling out uh, a, a passage from Psalms, and he's calling out this idea of being a wall or a stone that people will smash against. It's used again of Peter and John when they are before the synagogue in Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John must have heard this and put it into their memory banks, or the Holy Spirit brought it to them in Acts 4. We don't know for sure. But in Acts 4, when they are before the Jewish council, again, same kind of problem, man-made religion. When they are before another man-made religion of the Jewish council in Acts, they pull out the same verse. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. They are calling up, Luke 20, verse 18, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush it. It's taken even out of Isaiah chapter 8, 14 to 15. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Jesus is that wall of offense. And he's not just sharing it. (laughs) 
he's sharing it like this. This is dangerous, right? He is sharing it like this. It's not unclear who he's talking about. It's as if he dials in. It's as if he dials in and he says, you, I'm not going to do it right here because this is dangerous, but he says to them, you have become a stone of stumbling and offense. You are the fault. You are the one that's done this. And I'm done. I love you. Okay. Okay. Uh, you. Uh, you are the one that has done this. It's, it's in their face. He is not mincing words. He is directly putting it on them. It's, it's as if you can't make eye contact with Jesus at this point. Everybody's kind of like, look away, look away, look away. Somebody else is going to get it. And Jesus is like, no, look here. You are the ones that will smash against me. That's how this is going to go. Directly to them. And that is evident by the fact that you get this in verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him. (laughs) That makes sense. The dude was in their face causing them to see that there is a wall that they will smash against. And it's not the law. It is Jesus. This morning, can I just say, man-made religion is all around us today. It It is clear in our culture that we worship many, many things. And some that we think are close to Jesus, and we just assume, well, it's close to Jesus, so we'll just worship that. No, Jesus says there are some offensive things in Christianity. There are some walls that you must smash against as a culture and as an individual. You must smash against the wall that says you cannot earn your way to salvation. That's a wall that many have to hit against. And many don't like hitting against that wall. What do you mean I can't earn my way? What do you mean I'm not good enough? What do you, I've done all these right things. I've done all the stuff I need to do. I've protected my family. I've served my family. I've done all the right things. And I'm hoping and praying and crossing my fingers. I've done enough good things that I get into heaven. And Jesus reminds us that Christianity says that wall is the wall you will smash against. That there's no possible way for you to earn your way into heaven. That wall of offense is not only clear to, to that statement, they must ask also, we must also smash against the wall that says, that, that is the wall of truth that says you as a human being, because of sin in our lives, you are worse than you think. You are far more uglier in sin than you ever thought possible. Your kids are far worse than you think. <laughs> I don't know, Joel. I've talked to him this morning. It's pretty gross. I was pretty clear about how bad they were. No, that, it is far worse than you ever thought imaginable. Your best days without Christ are as dirty rags, Paul says. And it's not even, we'll get into that, it's a little bit grosser than dirty rag. It's, it's this idea that Paul says and Christ says, your faith is built on Jesus and Jesus alone. The wall that we must smash again is we are worse than we ever thought possible. And in a culture that is so inclusive and in a culture that says, you're not that bad, you're okay, lift yourself up, you'll be fine, everybody's okay, we're all okay. Jesus would come at them directly in their face and say, you are not okay. Your sin is evident and has made you an enemy of God himself. You are not okay. The wall that these man-made religions must smash against says that following Jesus will cost you. 
The wall and the stone of stumbling that is Jesus reminds us that following Jesus will cost each and every one of us everything. Not little, not small. It will cost you your very life. It will cost you everything. And Christianity is a bold religion to say, come on in. You're worse than you think. Come on in. You can't earn your way. Come on in. Jesus will cost you everything. And he's finally the wall that tells you on your best day, you are hopelessly short of earning God's favor. Hopelessly, desperately short of ever appeasing this God. You can't do it. And man-made religion says, yes, I can. I can do it. I can do it. But Jesus is stripping them of all those things. And it would be a horrible God if he just left it there. But he says, I've stripped you of all of it to remind you it is Jesus and Jesus alone. It is me and me alone. And I offer you freedom. This wall, if you smash against it enough, it will hopefully drive you to the gospel. And the gospel is that Jesus is enough. And Jesus is all that we need for this life and the one to come. He was stripping of their man-made religion, their man-made arrogance. Dane Ortland says it like this, the only alternative to the real Jesus, the only alternative to the real Jesus, not this man-made religion, but the only alternative to the real Jesus is to get back on the treadmill, the treadmill of doing your best to follow and honor Jesus, but believing his mercy and grace to be a stockpile that is gradually depleted by your failures and hoping, just maybe hoping to make it to death before the mountain of mercy runs out. If you're in this man-made religion, it is a terrible place to be of this, I'm running on this treadmill hoping to make Jesus and everybody else happy, and it's exhausting, and I'm tired of running on this treadmill trying to make everybody happy, and church attendance, and, and, and being in a community group apparently now, and all these things, and I'm just trying to be on this treadmill. It's just exhausting. I'm tired of being on this treadmill, and I hope that I've run this treadmill long enough that there's this mercy at the end. But here's what Jesus is reminding us, that this mountain of mercy that, we, that we're worried is going to run out isn't ever going to run out. There is never a amount of sin in our lives that Jesus can't and hasn't already handled on our behalf. That's an amazing truth this morning. There's not a mountain. There's, and trust me, we've got stockpiles of sin. I mean, trust me, I've got, you know, if we were to see it in the closet, it'd fill the whole closet and then some. And you're like, sin, I got that. That's clear. But we forget that Jesus has kind of built this house around that closet and said, there's enough mercy to cover that closet and a million closets beside that. I am offering you grace and mercy. I'm offering you freedom. These religious leaders of the temple are offering you guilt and shame and and more treadmills. I'm pulling you off and saying, it's mercy, it's grace and grace alone. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him, for they perceived that he had told this parable about them. Good job, guys. He did. (laughs) Like, I love that verse in there. For they had perceived maybe this was about them. Yeah, you're just as good as the disciples. Good job. Hey, guys, I think that was about us. You think so? Yeah, it makes me kind of angry. Are you angry? I don't know. Are you angry? Yeah. Oh, then I'm angry too, right? It's just this weird conversation happening. So they're all mad and they're all upset, but then you get this next verse, but they feared the people. (laughs) Good job, Jesus. Great parable. 
see you on Friday. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said as to deliver him from the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach us the way of God. <laughs> Called him teacher. They buttered him up. They thought this is going to be good. We're going to, you know, we're following you, Jesus, we're in. <clears throat> so they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? And so what he's doing is he's now taking from man-made religion, and now he's going to religion-made religion. <laughs> in other words, this idea of taking something good in the Gospels, taking something good in Scripture and manipulating it in a way that isn't really Scripture. They basically are trying to pin him to the thing of saying, what should we do with our taxes? And they're trying to divide here. They were desperate. And they're like, well, we'll either seal him with his, his death certificate through Rome or we'll, deal it, or we'll give him a death certificate through us. If, we tell, if he tells them that you're not supposed to pay taxes to Caesar, we'll tell Rome that'll take him out pretty quickly. If they say that, you know, it's, it, it, give it all to them and it's not a big deal, then he's going to somehow mess with us on the religious side. And so in this conversation, he does again what Jesus does. And he says, show me a denarius. Who's in, whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, it has Caesar's. And they said, and then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were, able, they were not able in the presence of people to catch him. What he does here in this passage is three things. One, he evades the trap. Secondly, he establishes the principle of the Christian attitude towards the state. <laughs> now, I don't want to go into the last two years. But the Christian attitude towards the state has come under attack, has it not? And our feelings towards the state have been very clear. You've all, I've all, me all, <laughs> have made it possibly very clear how we feel about the state and about the principles and the attitudes towards it. And Jesus says, don't get caught in the trap. Don't fall for the trap. Don't get caught in this religion-made religion. Yes, we're supposed to hate them and not do anything they tell us to do. Christ here has some pretty hard words for his disciples. Give to Caesar's what's Caesar's. Well, that's not fun. I mean, I don't want to honor that. Do you know who Caesar is? I mean, it's not like, I mean, Caesar would give any of our presidents a rabble for the, run for the money. Let's just be honest. And what he did and what he was about and who he was as a person, right? You think we got issues. Imagine saying you got to give taxes to pay Caesar what he's planning on doing as being Caesar. And somehow they were like, that doesn't make sense. Jesus is like, yeah, it's about submitting. It's about not religion-made religion. It's about a God-centered religion. What it does is it establishes a principle of Christians' attitude towards the state, but it also, thirdly, it exposed another evil of the leaders at the temple. And since Jesus' time and throughout history, religion made religion has always been there. We've seen it throughout church history, unfortunately, that religion made religion has done a lot of damage. And here's some things that can help you identify if it's religion made religion. Religion made religion <laughs> looks like those that hold the power hold on to the power with all of their might. And they will do anything and everything to manipulate, con to control, to even the crusades, even kill for the name of power and not for the sake of Christ. 
let's just be honest, Christianity has had uh, a dark spots in its past, has it not? And unfortunately, it's because religion made religion has caused those who want power never to give up power. Religion made religion comes very easily when we are living in fear and not in Christ. You talk to anybody who is living in fear and worry about pleasing God or pleasing the country or pleasing their friends or pleasing whoever, fear is a dangerous, dangerous thing when it's in the wrong place at the wrong time. And when you see religion made religion, it is often those that are living in fear. Let me just bring that into the church world. In the church world, that may look like somebody who says, I'm going to live by all these laws and rules for the sake of I don't want to accidentally miss something. I don't want to accidentally tick God off in some form, so I'm going to go to the letter and the dot and the, and the nuance of every single thing. And you can do that. But can I offer you a better way that Jesus is offering, and that is complete freedom in Jesus. Everything has been accomplished in Christ Religion made religion are those that don't want to give up power, are those that are living in fear, and religion made religion usually ends with a very ugly stain on the name of Jesus Christ and on the name of his church. So my hope, my prayer for us at community is we would not be those people that leave this ugly look and stain on Christianity, on Christ, but instead would say it's Christ and Christ alone, always for my salvation. Church attendance could be religion made religion. I've got, you know, 40 out of the 52 weeks in. We don't give out stars here. Sorry. We don't put charts up. Perfect attendance. Good job. We don't do that. Why? Because we want this to be a place that it's designed to be, to glorify and honor God with other brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. This is what that's about. It's not about counting attendance. It's not about a building. The building is a tool, and religion-made religion sometimes can turn a church building into the thing and not another tool that we use to advance the gospel. Does that make sense? Religion-made religion can also look like this. Just my own personal one. I'll just confess for, my, for where I am. One of mine in ministry, you've always heard growing up in ministry that you're just supposed to be busy. And you're supposed to work, and, and it's ministry, so it's supposed to be hard and difficult. And if you're not hard and difficult and, and working through it, and you're not busy, and you're not doing it all the time, then you're not doing ministry. And what that leads to, unfortunately, is this workaholic perfectionism that is religion-based religion. When in reality, if you look at Jesus' life, the biggest word you could use to describe Jesus was just calm. The, 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 the best word you could use of Jesus with his disciples was just unhurried settled, centered. The dude was never in a hurry anywhere. Even when his best friend was dying, <laughs> he didn't run. He just settled. He was unhurried. So for me, I look and I say, man, what example does your pastor set of working outside the normal margins of a daily week and just getting exhausted and pouring all this time instead of staying within the confines of saying, Christ and Christ alone will accomplish what he's going to accomplish no matter how many hours I put in. And yes, I can work them, but there's a better example to be set. And the better example to be set is I believe Jesus Christ can do more than me. So I'm going to settle down and I'm going to step back. I'm going to allow him to work. Does that make sense? I, I hope as a church, we don't have that pressure on ourselves. I got to work in 70 hours a week and I got to make it happen. 
I've been in churches like that. I've been under leadership like that. And it's a horrible example to set because then the rest of the church is like, well, I guess I'm not working 80 hours. I must not be doing something right. No, it's I'm trusting Jesus to be who he said he's going to be. I'm going to trust him to do these things. And it's this thing that we have to remember as we get to this idea of Christ and this, this law of, of religion-based religion. Matt Schmester, I can't even say his name. It's this weird German name. I, I butchered it completely. This one commentator <laughs> I read says this. This is a great phrase. The lawmaker, Jesus, became the law keeper in order to save the lawbreakers. Isn't that it? The lawmaker became the law keeper in order to save all the lawbreakers. All of the law is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. All of it. So what Jesus says goes. This stone wall that we broke against in the first one is some hard truths and realities. The wall that I think religion-based religion must slam against, the the stone that we trip up on if we are in this religion-made religion camp, is we slam against the stone wall of grace. Many of us aren't used to grace. You've grown up in a household that didn't give it. You've lived in environments where that's never been the case. You just achieve and work and discipline yourself to get things done. So for many of you, maybe religion-based religion, if you're in this camp, maybe that wall for you is you've got to keep slamming against grace again and again and again and again. And Jesus is going to keep slamming that into you. I love you more than you think. I've forgiven more than you think I've forgiven There is more grace here than you could ever empty out. This isn't about works. This is about grace. And I will continue to remind you again and again and again and as long as it takes. Grace is what I give. Grace is a wall that I personally, for years, in my 30s, slammed against that wall. I can do it. I can do it. I can do it. Until God. Christ literally pried my fingers away from ministries and reputations and accolades. He literally had to peel them off finger by finger. And he had to remind me again and again for years, it's grace. It's grace. It's grace. If you think you can send your way out of this, you can't. Grace, it's grace. And some of us this morning, you need to slam against that wall repeatedly because you're going to be prone to do it yourself. Grace and grace alone. Lastly, he frees us from unbiblical religion. In this last section we look at this morning, these Sadducees come uh, to Christ and they start asking about the resurrection and they give him this really weird story. And they're like, okay, God, there's this guy who's married. His wife dies. According to the Old Testament, he, his brother has to now marry this wife because the husband, I'm sorry, the husband dies and now this wife's alone. And so this brother now has to take on the responsibility to marry the wife. And it's this weird story about uh, he's now been like married to and uh, she's been married to and husbands have died times seven. Now, in today's world, if that were to happen, there'd be cases and police and FBI investigations, correct? I mean, if you're that woman and you've been through seven, uh, there's typically somebody at your door being like, could we talk? Um, but this really weird story is made up by these uh, Sadducees, and they said, okay, God, if that's the case, and they've married all these women, and when they get to heaven, which one's his wife? 
Here's the ironic part. The Sadducees didn't even really, they didn't even believe in the resurrection. <laughs> it's like they violated their own principles by saying there's a resurrection. And then they said, hey, hey, by the way, we got you on this. You believe in the resurrection so much? And Christ reminds them that that's not what heaven is about. And he adds this really weird statement where he says, The sons of, age, of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to the angels and sons of God being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in that passage about the bush where he calls the Lord God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living and for all who live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any questions. Unbiblical religion was simply that. They didn't believe in a resurrection, and yet they were to take Jesus onto a task of some weird story about the resurrection. And he says, that's not even how it works. God is a God of here and now. God is a God about saving people here and now. And he's about correcting your unbiblical view of that truth. And so the Sadducees had to slam against that wall of truth. And for many in our culture, maybe they've had to slam against that wall of truth. They, they're really good apologetics, right? For you, maybe you really love the idea of apologetics. You love to defend your faith. You love having scripture and verse, and you love to debate people because debating's awesome. And that's not me, but that maybe that's you, and you just love to have those apologetic debates and proof of this and proof of this and proof of this. The Sadducees were of the same mind, and yet they were using unbiblical ways to get there. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm even the God of unbiblical, I'm, I'm the God who is over even unbiblical religion. <clears throat> and all of this is happening at the temple. And what Christ has done at the temple in this time period of, of, of Luke 20 is to come against man-made religion, religion-made religion, and ultimately unbiblical religion. And he's going to point them all back to one simple truth, and that is this. It's me. It's me. I am the one. Verse 41, but he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of the Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit on my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus called him Lord, so how is he his son? And then he starts to give this long explanation of, of those, of whose Christ is he in lineage. And, and ultimately he comes back to it again and again. I am the true religion. If you, if you want to talk about religion, it's, it's me. It's only me. And so this morning, as we, as we wrap up, let me just kind of close with, with this, and hopefully some encouragement for you this morning as we, as we leave this passage and as we leave this visual of these 48 hours at the temple. In 1974, Francis Schaeffer, a theologian, philosopher, pastor, said that we hope to see, if we hope to see the gospel advance, this is back in 74, it's still true today, if we hope to see the gospel advance, in any of our churches, Community Bible Church included, if we hope to see the gospel advance, our churches must be marked by two, content, by two contents and two realities. Let me give you these real quick because I think these are powerful. If the gospel is to advance, we need to be <clears throat> known for strong doctrine, and we also need to be known for honest answers to honest questions. Religion-based religion and man-made religion is going to freak out if we don't have the answers and we don't have the right chapter and verse. Christ-based religion says we take the gospel, the, the, the doctrine of the scriptures very seriously, but we're going to be honest about our answers if we don't have the answers. 
If a church is going to be gospel-focused, it has to have strong doctrine, but it also has to have the grace of honest answers to honest questions. That's what has to be at the core. And I hope the community of Bible churches, we continue on, that we have that idea of strong doctrine here, but we also are, are real enough and honest enough to say we have honest answers to honest questions. And lastly, they need, to be, they need to be seen as having two realities in these gospel-growing churches. And they need to have true spirituality, not one of just words and, and mouthing off verses, but one that is truly lived out in our communities. True spirituality, taking care of orphans and widows. Christ said that that was a true mark of true spirituality. The fruit of the Spirit is, is a mark of true spirituality. Are you known more for the fruit of the Spirit than by how much doctrine and, and, and data you can give out? A gospel-growing church is known for their fruit, and it's true spirituality. And here's the last part I loved in this little article. He says, not only do they need to be known by true spirituality, they need to be known for the beauty of human relationships. Jesus at the temple was there on purpose. All the people were there. And all of them he brought to himself. And as he's ticking off these Pharisees, what he's doing is he's truly drawing in all these lost people. And more and more, they're starting to wait, wait, this is different. This isn't like the Pharisees. This guy's different. This is, his authority's different. It was the beauty of saying, I honor you as a human being in a relationship. I, the beauty of human relationships is part of a gospel-growing church. And so for us, as we head into the future, I pray that we are known for these things, strong doctrine, honest answers to honest questions, true spirituality, and yet maintain and retain the idea of the beauty of human relationships. My encouragement for you this morning is simply this. You can live in the freedom that Jesus is offering you. You can. I'm not going to give you a bunch of how-tos this morning. I'm just going to end with the possibility and the truth that you can live in freedom in Jesus Christ. You have access to him. He can produce a life that is strong in doctrine. He can produce a life that is honest answers to honest questions. He can produce a life that is true and producing fruit. And he can produce a life that, it, that values the beauty of human relationships. But ultimately this morning, you need to hear that it is possible. That if Christ did these things around the temple, he would do it again today. And saying to you, don't get caught in traps. Go to Jesus. Only Jesus can give you the freedom that you need. You have a father and not a boss. You have a friend and not a taskmaster. You have grace, like wide open land and not a prison cell and accountability partners, right? Or parole officers in that, right? You, you, you have freedom. You have freedom. And he's asking you to live in it instead of getting bogged down into... Church, religion, religion. Jesus is it. He is freedom, he is grace, and he's calling you to live in it. And you can. It's possible to do that. We pray for you this morning as we close. Father, we thank you this morning for the reminder again, and we've we've probably heard this before, but I pray that in your goodness and in your sovereignty, you would drive it home this morning to those that need it. Father, for those who are smacking against walls of truth think they're good enough, they think that they have to earn their way to heaven, I pray that you would shut that down. For those who are slamming against that wall of grace and thinking that there's not enough for them, I pray that you would just overwhelm them with grace. <laughs> overwhelm them with goodness. Overwhelm them with who you are. 
to remind them that they are not who they were anymore. But in Jesus Christ, they are free. And Father, those that need to hear this idea of truth, I pray that they would hear the biggest truth, and that is the Son of God came to set us free. And we would live in that freedom. I thank you for being a God who cares so deeply about us, protects us, and sets the example for us every single day. We love you and we thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.